Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. I want to welcome everyone to today's roundtable on the U.S. midterm elections. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor uh, in the International Relations Department and director of the Fallon United States Center uh, at LSE, which is hosting tonight's event. Well, here we are the day after. Uh, Republicans uh, were counting on a huge red wave to carry them to victory in the House and the Senate and at the uh, at state level, and it, it has not materialized. Uh, as of this evening, maybe we can put up the first slide, the Republicans are still likely to uh, carry the House, but it's not uh, certain, actually. Um, and it it could take weeks for the full results to be tallied, as it did in 2018. Um, right now, according to the AP, the Republicans have uh, 203 seats uh, secured. They need 218 to win the majority. Um, meanwhile, the Senate remains very much in play. Um, AP again is showing the um, Republicans with 49 seats. Uh, we may have to wait until um, December 6 and a, a, a Georgia uh, runoff uh, election to know uh, who controls the Senate. Uh, so deja vu all over again. Uh, the picture at the state level is more complex as it so often is. It's difficult to summarize. But one important developing story here has to do with the many Republican candidates who embraced Donald Trump's claim that the 2020 election was rigged against him. Now, many of those uh, were incumbents. They've held on to their seats, but in some very high profile elections, such as the governor races in um, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and it appears in Arizona, they've either lost or they're running behind. And the same is true in races uh, for Secretary of State. Uh, exit poll numbers um, suggest that the turnout was strong for a midterm, uh, maybe not as high as 2018, which was off the charts. You'd have to go all the way back to 1914 to find a turnout for a midterm as strong as 2018, but very strong nonetheless. And that inflation and abortion, if we can go to the next slide, played an outsized role in voters' calculations with Republicans more anxious about inflation and Democrats angry about the Supreme Court's decision in June overturning Roe v. Wade. The exit polls also indicate that party voting, maybe the next slide or two, remains skewed along gender, age, education, and race. Republicans drew support disproportionately from older, white, non-college educated voters. They actually jacked up their numbers over the last midterm there. Um, Democrats from younger college educated voters, white, black, Hispanic, and Asian American. I will say the Republicans made inroads with Asian Americans. The Democrats did better with independent voters than pollsters were expecting. Well, what are we to make of all this? Why did Republicans underperform? How did Joe Biden and the Democrats manage to stave off the kind of midterm losses that Barack Obama experienced in 2010? 
and Bill Clinton experienced in 1994, who were the big winners and losers last night on the Republican side. Um, and what do the 2022 elections pretend for Biden's agenda at, at home as well as abroad? And last but not least, what does the election tell us about the state of American democracy and what we might expect from the 2024 presidential contest? These are big questions, and fortunately, we've put together a crackerjack panel of experts to help us make sense of the election and its potential implications uh, in the United States and abroad. In alphabetical order, they include James Morrison, Associate Professor of International Relations at LSE, Stephanie Rickard, Professor of Government at LSE, Joe Sternberg, a columnist and member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, and Linda Way, a visiting professor at LSE Ideas and an associate fellow at uh, Chatham House. So to get us started, I asked each of our panelists to take three minutes to offer some initial reflections or thoughts about the main takeaways from the election thus far. Um, we'll go in alphabetical order, but before we do, a couple of housekeeping notes. We've got plenty of time. We've put aside plenty of time for uh, audience questions. Just send them to us via the Q&A function uh, on Zoom. I'll, I'll do my level best to get as many of them in as possible. Be sure to include your name and affiliation so I can belt those out um, when we put your questions to, uh, to our panelists. Um, normally at this point, um, I would ask all of you to put your hands together to give our speakers one of those very warm uh, LSE welcomes that we're famous for. That's of course not possible today. So in lieu of applause, I encourage you to pose questions in the Q&A period. Well, James, Stephanie, Joe, and Linda, welcome to uh, LSE's online platform. It's terrific. It's great to have you with us uh, this evening here. Um, James, we're going to start with you. You've had a few hours to digest what's going on in the U.S. election. So what are some of your key takeaways? All right. Well, thank you, Peter. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, it's been a certainly exciting day. I'm going to make three statements related to the election. The first one's about the economy, the second one about the culture wars, and the third about the trajectory of American democracy. So the first statement, statement number one, it is not the economy, stupid. Now, this is a reference, of course, to Jim Carville's famous advice to Bill Clinton in 1992. You've got to focus on the economy. It's the economy, stupid. Well, that that's just not true here, right? We have the worst inflation we've seen in decades, massive press coverage of the inflation, sort of so much that we've overshadowed the fact that we've had really good economic performance, stunning performance when you consider all the challenges in the global economy by COVID, war in Ukraine, and so on. Now, the Republicans tried their best to run on this kind of economic um, agenda. Uh, and it did prove more successful than the sort of MAGA type strategy. Yet, as you said, as we know, there's no red wave, not even close. So if it's not the economy, what is it? Well, it's the culture wars, stupid. That's point number two, statement number two. Now, we know that when Trump was running, he fixated on America's role in the global system, the global economy. He talked a lot about the U.S. economy and how we kept losing uh, globally. But I think that it's important to remember that's not how all Republicans really thought about things. Personally, I know, love, and respect many Republicans who voted for Trump despite his messaging 
his demeanor, and his brand. Many voted for Trump because he was the Republican candidate and because he promised to appoint pro-life justices to the Supreme Court. Now, we see that that question about abortion and human rights broadly construed has proven to be crucial. We're seeing the reaction on the left to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Basically, what we see is pro-choice candidates have won. They've turned out the vote and referenda on abortion rights have also been remarkably successful. Even in a place like Michigan, my home state, we see that the constitutional amendment, according to some interpretations, could give more of these rights, more of these rights than we see even in places like the UK. So it's a really significant shift. And I think the culture wars are at the core of it. As academics, we need to be very cautious about what we do when people say things out loud to pollsters about their intentions and motivations. In the end, I think many are likely to act on their own deeply held and private convictions about deeply personal beliefs related to human rights. So on these first two statements, very simply put, the economy is extremely important. Human rights are extremely important, but nobody knows how to fix the economy. Yet at the same time, we all do have strong, deeply held opinions about what makes for human rights. So the economy is not a wedge issue these days, but human rights, I think, is one. Okay, my last statement is, so long, Mr. Trump, it has not been a pleasure. The MAGA movement has been pummeled, right? As of a few hours ago, nine election deniers lost and just five have won. That's two to one nearly against the MAGA platform. Uh, a few weeks ago, the Financial Times Magazine published an article, a wonderful article that says, Ron DeSantis is Donald Trump with brains and without the drama. Now, all those Republicans who voted for Trump while holding their nose can, and I think likely will, vote for someone like DeSantis in the future. I think this would be a very good thing for the Republican Party. I personally don't think I'll ever vote for DeSantis. I disagree with him about most things, but I think it would be better not just for the Republican Party, but for American democracy and indeed for the world. Well, James, terrific. And you came in well under three minutes. So uh, that's a, that gets us started. Um, those are all I, we're going to circle back on all of those issues, I'm sure. Um, Stephanie, uh, let's turn to you. How do you size up the midterms? Were you surprised by the Republican performance? Thoughts? Thanks, Peter. I was surprised because we know that when the economy does poorly, people vote against the incumbent. I mean, this is just an almost an ironclad fact. We even have a word for it. It's called the economic vote. When the economy is doing poorly, people are angry, people are hurting, and they punish the incumbents. Given that, the Democrats did surprisingly well. They really outperformed given the state of the economy. But it doesn't look like they outperformed well enough. It looks like we're still headed towards a divided government. A lot of people have a lot of angst about divided government, but it's important to remember that divided government is really the norm. It's most often the case in recent decades that we have a divided government in the United States where the presidency is controlled by one party and either the House or Senate is controlled by another party. So this is really normal politics. And some people even suggest that it's politics that are preferred by the voters. I was in Pennsylvania last week where the campaigns were toxic. They were really, really intense. The ads, the campaigns, the rhetoric, it was really vicious. But I heard a campaign that made this argument that said, we don't want to have unified government. We don't want to allow the Democrats to have control of the presidency, of the House, and of the Senate. And that's why you need to vote Republican. So that's an interesting appeal. It's appealing to this idea that we want checks and balances. 
that there's something inherently valuable in having a check on unfettered power so that a single party can't press through their legislative agenda without any checks. So divided government is very common in the United States. Some voters may even prefer divided government. But what's different now is that there's this real toxic polarization that really makes it impossible to see a future for bipartisan legislation. And so while we have had divided government in the past, what's made divided government work, which what's made divided government maybe preferential to voters is this idea that you have to work together. You have to come together to make a compromise between the left and the right to put forward the best piece of legislation that we can all agree on. But that's not what's happening today. We have this really, really toxic polarization where the spirit of bipartisanship is dead. And so what divided government means now is really deadlock. So we're not going to see a lot of things happen in the next two years. We're really going to see a maintenance of the status quo. And that has implications even for some of Biden's legislative achievements. So, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act, this was a real legislative achievement for Biden's administration. But we've heard some um, discontent with parts of that bill from allies, particularly the European Union. They're sort of raising concerns about some things included in this legislation, such as the subsidies for U.S. car makers to produce electric vehicles and U.S. consumers to buy electric vehicles. They're saying, wait, this isn't fair. This is, in effect, unleveling the playing field and giving an advantage to domestic producers. Some people have even claimed it violates the World Trade Organization's rules. Now, if there wasn't divided government, maybe Biden could sort of revisit this, find a way to make it work, find a way to appease um, his allies, the European Union and others like Korea, who also think these subsidies may be unfair. But once you have divided government, all bets are off. And so now we're, we have this piece of legislation, which is a great achievement, but it's potentially creating some trade tensions. And without divided government, with divided government, it's hard to see a way forward to resolve that. Well, that's great, Stephanie. And I really, um, it's great that you put on the table here the international implications of what's happening um, with the midterms, what it will likely mean. And trade is one area. We'll want to talk about Ukraine and funding the Ukrainians and what it will mean for um, uh, US China relations. So there's a lot there. Joe, you know, your paper. Um, it came. I mean, I read it early in the morning, and maybe I got it wrong, but your paper this morning pretty much declared DeSantis one of last night's winners. Um, and um, is that one of the takeaways? I'm curious where you kind of come down on just how things are shape will shake out inside the Republican Party. I don't know if you want to address that now, maybe later. Uh, yeah, Peter. I mean, thank you, Peter and the Phelan Center for organizing this and uh, having us all together here, um, you know, to try to parse through what you know, makes sense of what has actually happened to the extent that we know what has happened because the vote counting is still going on. And I guess uh, two things are sticking out about uh, sticking out to me about what has happened um, in this election. One observation for each party. Um, so the observation for the Republican Party is that it's almost as if we had two completely different midterm elections yesterday. Um, there was the Trump midterm, and then there was the non-Trump midterm. Um, so the non-Trump midterm uh, you know, were sort of those elections where 
he was not much of a factor. He was actually an antagonistic factor for the Republican candidate in the election, uh, often for reasons you know, going back to the fallout from the 2020 election. So you know, these are cases like uh, most of the races in Florida where Ron DeSantis was uh, far and away the more dominant political figure there. Um, or the Georgia governor race is mm. really interesting where Brian Kemp, the Republican, has won re-election by a much wider margin than uh, Herschel Mark Walker is likely to eke out in the Senate race. And you know, Trump was very antagonistic toward Kemp because Kemp was not as sympathetic to the you know, stolen election narrative. And what we discovered is that, you know, when Trump was less of a factor in the election, the Republicans performed in much the way you would expect for a normal midterm. The problem is that most of this midterm from the Republican perspective was the Trump midterm, um, where he had been very involved in um, putting his thumb on the scale in the nomination process for a lot of these candidates or um, you know, had been you know doing the rallies or otherwise trying to engage in these elections in, in various forms, and that is where the disaster happened. So I think that uh, moving forward for the Republicans, the key question now is, you know, the Republican politicians and the donors all understand this and have known this for a while. Um, the interesting question is: Is this the moment where Trump's voters? start thinking, you know, maybe he's not the winning horse that we thought he was. Um, and I mean, the only brief observation I would make about the, the Democrats is, um, you know, the question for them is, will they understand exactly how lucky they got? Because this is a very ahistorical midterm result. Um, and I think that clearly they benefited from um, bad candidate selection and the Trump factor on the Republican side. And interestingly, Democrats seem to understand that. I mean, we've already forgotten in the last 24 hours, but in the two weeks leading up to this election, you're already seeing all of these pre-crimination analyses from Democratic strategists about how they lost the midterm that they have ended up not losing. Yeah. Um, and so I think that the, the insight there was that actually this was a very difficult environment for them, that the economy, law and order issues, immigration remain very difficult issues for them. I think the key question for them over the next two years is, will they hang on to that insight that they did get lucky here? And will they understand that there might still need to be some kind of policy pivot before they get to the next election uh, on some of these issues? Or will they start thinking that maybe there's less of a sense of urgency about some of this stuff? And I think that that kind of fall off in urgency in, in some of this, if they overinterpret this result, would be, probably be very dangerous for them. Yeah, that that is very interesting, Joe. I, I wonder if the bellwether here will be um, whether they, on the Democratic side, the um, the leadership steps aside for younger people. This is the moment to do it, it seems to me. And it would begin to address some of these kinds of issues that I think are tied up in what you just said. Um, so uh, anyway, before I get off on that, I want to return to that. Um, uh, Linda, so what haven't we said that needs to be said? What are some of your key takeaways? 
I actually think it's very hard to go last because that was all interesting and covered so much ground. So I'm just going to pick three points and just elaborate a bit. And the first one is actually on one I think that most of us had just, uh, you know, been astounded by, which is um, inflation is high, the highest really for about 40 years. Um, All the polling suggests Republicans do better when inflation is high. So I think my theory here is that voters are much more nuanced, even within the economic strands. Of course, you know, abortion, as we saw, is a huge issue as well, and that favors um, the Democrats. But just looking at the economy, um, one of the strongest correlates from uh, the Trump versus Clinton race was that in the exit poll, if you thought you were better off uh, than a year ago, then you would vote for the, you know, you would, in that case, um, have gone for the kind of continuity candidate, can't Clinton. If you thought you were worse off, you went for Trump. So what happens when you are faced with the misery index, which is what unfortunately high inflation, high unemployment is called. So right now inflation is high, but unemployment is low. 3.6% unemployment or so is actually the lowest in about 50 years. And um, in the US, um, Okay, any other economy, when you have six months of contracting GDP would be in a recession, but not in America, <laughs> because it's, it's a judge by never. So, uh, so the US is not in a recession, <laughs> uh, which actually phrasing does help. So what I'm suggesting is you, those who may feel inflation's hit them hardest, especially um, if you are, um, you know, uh, spend more on food because that's double digit inflation, but because unemployment is slow and the US is not in recession, I do wonder if the edge given to Republicans um, is a bit less um, and that kind of nuance could help explain why um, even in the, uh, you know, in the, all the polling, a strong majority of people, 70% of Democrats in one of the polls I saw, 77% Republicans say they're not better off than a year ago. And yet we're still getting this result. And I think it's because voters are nuanced about their economic um, position. So I find that absolutely fascinating. Um, I don't want to uh, depress people too much, but unemployment is a lagging indicator. So it tends to rise after <laughs> uh, the economy starts to take a, a downturn. So maybe, maybe, you know, like Joe said, the Democrats should count themselves lucky that this is happening now because most forecasts of the recession for the U.S. is actually next year. The second point I want to make is that I think we've kicked off uh, 2024. So um, we've already heard about Ron uh, DeSantis um, at his uh, victory uh, party. Uh, they were chanting, serve two years. And I think that is a, that is an indication. His supporters expect him to serve two years and then um, and then go ex-Marine, Yale, Harvard Law. I mean, you know, he has, um, well, I'm sure we'll come back to this, but, you know, he has the kind of, uh, he potentially has the kind of um, uh, appeal um, that would make Trump uh, very nervous. And of course, Trump, he's going to announce next week. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm just going to quote this because I don't really like giving Trump too much airtime. But this is um, so Trump said right before the polling stations closed. Well, I think they, the Republicans, if they win, I should get all the credit. If they lose, I should not be blamed at all. So 2024. <laughs> and the, and the uh, you know, and because uh, the Democrats um, will see, but the race um, certainly is making, um, perhaps making Biden think um, whether he should also uh, run 
for a second term. So I think all of that, I think we're seeing the 2024 race beginning to um, shape up. And then finally, I called this point democracy under threat. So the Washington Post estimated that at least 159 election denying Republicans had won their races in the House, the Senate and key statewide offices. But this is the statistics that really strikes me. So the Washington Post looked at 569 races and 51% of the candidates have challenged or refused to accept President Biden's victory. And these people are running in every region of the country and in nearly every state. So to me, that's the um, worrying part um, that I'm still, uh, uh, you know, think we, we ought to flag. But I want to finish on sort of a more optimistic note. So um, millennials entering Congress, uh, there's a 25 year old who is an ethnic minority uh, going in to serve in the House of Representatives. And Joe Biden was asked, um, is he younger than you when he and, and uh, Biden said, well, yes, because he was 30 when he was uh, sworn into office, because obviously he ran for the Senate, the age limit is higher. So I think there's actually, um, so long as we keep getting these young blood coming into you know, office and, and hoping to run, maybe democracy being under threat is actually prompting, uh, you know, uh, people to become involved. Um, and we could see um, a much different uh, field of, uh, you know, of members of Congress um, in the years to come. So, you know, so was that, was that, I'm going to pause there, um, Peter. So I just wanted to end the democracy under threat on a slightly more positive note. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's great. I actually, I think I want to pick up on the democracy under threat. But before I do, let me um, let me welcome folks from the United States, from uh, Georgia, from uh, Costa Rica, from Poland, from Singapore, Denmark, Lebanon, Luxembourg, Canada, and elsewhere. It's great to have you on the platform with us here uh, at LSE. I mean, you all touched um, in either directly, um, uh, like James did and, and Linda did on the democracy question. We heard a lot about democracy being at risk in the run-up to the election. And really, I mean, both Biden and, and then when Obama was campaigning with him or, or separately was really hammering um, that issue. And I, I'm... I would like to just get your thoughts. I mean, given where we are right now in this, turnout was very high. Um, what, what you think about those fears and how we should think about them? I mean, there's not, there has been some frustration over ballots um, in Pennsylvania. There's an issue. There's a couple states where there's issues, but it's, it's not right now, it's not systemic. There may be people um, who uh, who lose, who challenge the vote um, and make it a big issue. Um, but we we haven't seen much of that uh, yet. These are, you know, we're still in the kind of early hours, I suppose. But I, I wonder what are you feeling, I guess, like more, less bullish about American democracy? I mean, wh where do you kind of help? I, I think a lot of people over here internationally, I mean, are, are very focused, as of course many Americans are, on the state of democracy and wondering how to interpret this result. Anybody want to take a bite at that? 
Um, I'll, I'll offer a, a couple thoughts. I mean, one is just a structural observation that I think that one of the practical problems that America has dealing with this issue of you know, people questioning the legitimacy of election results is it just takes too darn long to count the ballots. And so again, we are in the situation where it takes America weeks and weeks to sort of count ballots that have come into the system, you know, in person or in-person early voting or mail-in voting. And I think that this is a big thing that people outside of the U.S. need to understand drives a lot of this, because I think that the longer you drag out this process of counting the ballots, and you know, the harder it becomes for there to be transparency about that, and the more space you're going to end up creating for conspiracy theorists. So I think that one argument that you hear, including among a lot of conservatives, uh, is that ultimately the way that you tamp down on this is to just streamline or improve the process of counting the ballots so that you can have results more quickly. Um, and then, I mean, the only other political observation I would make about this is you know, something I'm, that should have occurred to Republicans a lot sooner, which is that if you have lost an election, as they did in 2020, spending two years telling the voters that they must, they, surely they couldn't have meant it, you know, which is the implication of this business that the election must have been stolen, is not a viable electoral strategy. So I, I think that, you know, that is one lesson. Certainly, I, I think it would be good for democracy in general if Republicans finally pick up on that. That you need a positive, <laughs> an agenda that you're running on something as opposed to like what, you know, a, a kind of more positive um, agenda. That uh, James, did you have your hand up there? No. I, I have something to say, but I think Stephanie was ahead of me. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Stephanie. Sorry. Uh, I mean, I would just say, yes, this is a win for democracy, right? We don't see violence on the street. We see pushback against some of the candidates that were falsely questioning the 2020 election results. In my home state of Colorado, it looks like a seat is going to flip the uh, congressional third district where Boebert has been uh, a Republican wow. questioning falsely the legitimacy of the 2020 elections. They haven't called it yet. It's very close, but it looks like she might lose her seat. And so I think that this is overall a win for democracy. There's no violence. There's pushback against these, these um, candidates that have allied themselves with this false narrative. So I'm going to call it a win and, and, and say this is a positive outcome for America. Other, other thoughts or should I move on? Go ahead, James. Yeah, I would I would like to pick up on, on that question. Uh, I agree with, with both of, uh, Joe and Stephanie. These remarks. I'd like to come back a little bit to Stephanie's remark about gridlock. I think it's fascinating and really important. And one of the things that might happen is we might revert to more federalism. And so the state of American democracy might not just be about elections. It might also be about where the locus of authority and decision making actually lies. Um, if we think about the nationalization of American politics it really kicks off in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, and you have the extraordinary you know, challenge at the Great Depression, focuses minds, Second World War, Cold War, and you get the kind of Cold War consensus. But once those 
big challenges seem to go away, it's there's a lot of incentive for people to say, I want authority much closer to where I live because we around here want to do things in this way. And if that becomes uh, politically what happens, we're going to see significant demographic shift as people move to states where they feel that their voice is better represented. And so the American political system could become even more deeply fractured, not just at the national level between the parties, but between the states as decision-making authority moves back down to the state level. And um, if I may, Peter, just on this question, um, I. I flagged it, but I'm actually, um, I think this was a win for democracy too, because uh, democracy, as we all know, is a process and a process of shifting from where we were to towards a more uh, moderate outcome, which is what we see. I think that's almost the best that you can hope for. Now, Joe Biden has been described as winning this election based on low expectations. So maybe all our expectations are just really low <laughs> about uh, about their strategy of you know labeling um, you know, mega extremists and those who are, you know, beholden to Trump and and election deniers. So I do think we are shifting, but I think those statistics uh, just remind us that it is a process and you now do have 159 candidates who are election deniers who are in office. So I think hopefully we'll continue to move um, down uh, down the line, but I think, you know, the outcome today is um, is better than um, I think than what most uh, were were worried about, and I say so. Therefore, it's a win. So let me ask a little bit about um, uh, we've we've got a number of questions that are in the chat about the twenty twenty four election, but before we get there, um, um, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about what the implications of the election are likely to be for. For Biden's agenda, his domestic agenda, um, what we might expect, um, and I think also what does it mean, let's assume for the sake of argument here, um, and it does look like the Republicans will gain control of the House, what would this mean for Kevin McCarthy? I mean, you know, at, at one level, you know, you think, well, I mean, given the lousy performance you know, that there'll be a challenge, but maybe a lot of people don't want Kevin McCarthy, don't want to be speaker with a, a caucus that's small. I mean, relatively speaking, given, you know, that the, 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 the gains are not uh, what people were expecting. So I don't know, what do people think about kind of the, the policy? I mean, Stephanie, you, you've certainly addressed this, that gridlock, we can expect gridlock. Um, and it'll have consequences internationally. But, okay, let's just narrow down. What does this mean for the Republican agenda? If you're Kevin McCarthy and you're the speaker, what do you do? Do you, Joe, do you continue to make, try to use the debt ceiling to get concessions on Social Security and Medicare? Do you try to cut funding on the Ukraine to force the Europeans to spend more? Or do you say, geez, I'm not going to be able to deliver that given my caucus has got like Trump supporters, but I got some kind of moderate conservative Republicans. I don't have enough to work with. Please not the debt ceiling. Uh, the Republicans <laughs> have got to get out of the habit of trying to push that boulder up the hill every time. And it always rolls back over them again. Um, I, I mean, my view on this is that I think that the, the, if, as you are always looking to the next election, 
And yeah. so if you think that the big democratic vulnerability in the next election is going to continue to be the you know management of the economy, the you know various crime issues which are you know very strong for Republicans, um, you know border issues. The thing that ties all of that together is a general sense that the wheels are falling off, that the government is somehow not managing to do the basic functions that people expect it to do, that there is some kind of failure of management on the part of the Democratic Party. And so I, I would think that part of the solution to that is for the Republicans to start trying to pass through legislation in the House, even if they know it's not going to go anywhere. Right. It gives voters some idea of what a Republican agenda would actually look like and then gives Republican candidates in two years an opportunity to say, well, why did so-and-so Democrat in the Senate vote against this very sensible legislation that, you know, is polling well and whatnot? Now, the, the worst thing they could do is the thing that I'm afraid they probably will be very tempted to do, which is to just launch a lot of investigations right. um, because the Congress has enormous oversight power um, over executive agencies. And um, if you can't legislate, investigating is the only other thing you can do with your time. Um, now, I, I think that that probably is a political dead end for them precisely because, I mean, my, my theory is that voters actually want to see evidence of capable management. Um, and in fact, I think it was the failure of a lot of these Trumpy candidates to do that that created the problem for Republicans here, um, but especially in a, a very narrowly divided House and an unruly caucus, whether it's uh, McCarthy or anyone else, they might find it very difficult to resist that temptation to just do hearings for everything. <laughs> From Anthony Fauci to Hunter Biden to the pullout from Afghanistan, which actually might be merited, you know. Well, I, I mean, I, I will say there is one way that they can do investigations that would be effective, and that is if they investigate government agencies instead of people. Yeah. So, so don't do hearings on Anthony Fauci, but by all means, do hearings on how well the CDC in general mm -hmm. handled the pandemic. Um, you know, do do that kind of hearing that really focuses on how well the government is actually functioning. Um, but if they use the if they use this oversight power as an opportunity for personal political score settling, um, it'll definitely feel good for them to do that, and it'll feel really good for parts of the Republican base to see them do that. Uh, but I don't see that being a political winner. Other thoughts on this? Yeah, Linda, go ahead. Uh, just a quick, uh, since we're offering advice, yeah. <laughs> my I, advice I think Kevin is... McCarthy is going to need it. So <laughs> <laughs> My advice is the debt ceiling allows America to pay for the debt it's already borrowed. So <laughs> it is, uh, it's not, it doesn't, uh, if we could try to remove that, that would really be helpful. And the fact, you know, the last um, when the U.S. lost its AAA credit rating by S&P, it was because uh, the risk of default, which is something that had not um, ever really been an issue, um, was raised. So let's be clear, the US runs a deficit, it's mounting debt is due to its spending policies. And the debt ceiling just allows you to pay for what you've already 
you've already borrowed, you've already spent. But I know, Peter, um, we need to bring you in because you're obviously such an expert. And so we were chatting earlier about this issue. So I, I just um, wanted to to make sure that you had a you know you had a chance to share your thoughts on on the domestic agenda and the debt ceiling if we do end up with a bit of a split um, between the House and. The um, I, I well, I would say on the debt ceiling, I think it was always going to be a heavy lift for Kevin McCarthy, and I think the hill just got steeper. Um, so there there are plenty of Republicans, or I think enough Republicans, that will cross over to make sure that that the U.S. doesn't default. Um, and I think the fact that they didn't do as well as they were expecting will make it easier for somebody like Mitch McConnell to do that. So, I mean, he got hammered the last time for doing it. And, um, uh, but I think it will be, it will be easier. But what about the question of, I mean, another thing in the run-up to the election that Republicans really focused on, at least, I mean, a significant portion of the party, including McCarthy, was aid to Ukraine. And, you know, um, and, and, I mean, they're not in a position with Biden, Biden's in a position to veto anything that they push, it seems to me. But I, I wonder what people think kind of that kind of traction that might get inside the Republican caucus at this point or, um, or even inside the Democratic caucus. I don't know, James, Stephanie, do you have thoughts about that? Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. It was noticeable. Uh, and I actually spoke about it at an LSE uh, public event on a different topic, how little pay Biden was making about the aid that the U.S. had provided to Ukraine, right? It was almost not covered in the U.S. media, this sort of huge uh, contribution that the U.S. had made to Ukraine. But it was getting huge media coverage over here, right? And particularly in Germany, saying, look at what the U.S. is doing. You know, we're, why are we not doing this? So, right, I mean, they knew that that was not uh, uh, something to advertise. Um, but I think that the Republicans going forward, I, Peter, you're giving them a lot more credit. I don't even know if they have a unified voice on even that issue, right? I mean, I think it's we're we're it's they set themselves up, or actually, this election set the party up for this phrase that I love from British politics: "blue on blue warfare," right? I mean, this is the time for civil war in the Republican Party. They have to fight to see the future of the party, and they're you know different visions of that party going forward, but it doesn't seem like there's any co anybody's coalescing around a, a way forward. So I'm not even sure if something like aid to Ukraine would unify the Republicans in a way that they could play offense. It seems like they're going to be so divided right. via these different factions that they're going to always be on the defense. And that means these investigations that Joe highlighted. I, I, no, I agree with that position. The investigations are the common denominator for them. But and uh, and uh, but as Joe points out, it's like going down. It's just going down a garden path in many respects. Um, James. Yes, I agree entirely. I, I keep thinking about the. 
analogy from my formative years, uh, Newt Gingrich's con contract with America, sure. where the Republicans come in and they have a very clear agenda and they really push it through. And then Bill Clinton, uh, perhaps to his credit, perhaps to his uh, discredit, decides to work with the Republicans. I don't see the Republicans doing that because they are so hugely fractured over what the soul of the Republican Party is and where the Republican Party is going. Um, if Trump and the, the, the Trumpism and MAGA had really done well in this election, then we have some sense of where the Republican Party is going. It's going back towards Trump, and they're going to spend a couple of years gearing up for that. But there are, I think, very powerful elements within the conservative uh, caucus broadly construed that are looking at what, what has just happened, saying we absolutely should not have lost this election. We barely won it. And, and it's not even clear that they're going to win it in all the ways that they expected to. Um, we have really dropped the ball. We need something new. It's time for change. And so I think Stephanie's point about, you know, internist in conflict within the party over the future is absolutely the, the right um, prediction. Um, it's going to be two years of nothing, I think. Maybe investigations, maybe some trying to hold Biden's feet to the fire over foreign policy. But uh, even there, I just don't think that they have a clear direction. Um, okay, great. Well, let me let me turn to some of the questions. We have a lot of questions coming in. Um, they're, they're, they're interesting. And, and, and here's um, one that actually takes us back to... Um, to the exit polls. It's from Joel Colony, he's uh, um, uh, in the uh, an alum from LSE Global Politics, um, uh, the MSC program. Um, uh, I guess in government, not in IR. <laughs> so, regarding exit polls um, categorized by race and education, I'm interested in what the results regarding Americans who have never attended college versus those who tell the panelists uh, about um, the ongoing failure of the Democratic Party to appeal to Americans without a college education and the failure of US higher education to be accessible to more Americans. I mean, this is an interesting question too for the Democrats because Fetterman used this issue he went into Republican territory, which used to be Democratic territory, and fought on those grounds that he could appeal to white blue collar voters. But the same thing didn't happen. You know, you could argue that it didn't happen in Ohio, um, that he wasn't successful, you know, the, the, and, and, and what are your thoughts about this and kind of the white non-college educated voter and just the educational the division over education that's now playing itself out really it's not frankly it's not just in the united states it's in in european democracies we just saw play itself out actually in brazil as well thoughts about this somebody we, step, yeah. we know that one of the best predictors of support for free trade is education and so there's so many things wrapped up in that what is why is it educated people are supportive of free trade is it because it helps their economic self interest is it because they went to a good university and learned about it, like the LSE? I mean, is it because they adopted some sort of cosmopolitan globalist values? We don't really know. Maybe it's all of those. But we know that education plays this really strong role in making people more open to globalization, to others, to the world, to travel. All of these things are correlated with education. Um, and so 
how do how do uh, politicians tap into that? I don't know. I mean, I think that it's it's a challenge for both parties. But you're right that Pennsylvania race. I used to live in Pennsylvania, and he hit all of the right notes. Right. I saw him campaigning and saying, "I value steel. I value unions. I value uh, you know the people who have left behind and the places that have left behind." And all of these things, we know that these are the places that are swinging back and forth in Europe between extreme right parties and extreme left parties, in the US between more extreme versions of the Democrats and the Republicans. How do the parties capture that? How do they appeal to those voters? I think that's the $10 million question for both parties. And um, I was just gonna say, you definitely see that um, uh, you know, uh, in the UK as well. I mean, it's interesting because by the Democrats moving to the center ground and the Republicans, well, all over the place, but you leave, you leave their more traditional, um, you know, voters. And I think that's what, um, this is, um, this is picking up. But I was just going to reflect for a moment on sort of how the polling, uh, was, was a bit off, uh, for this election. And, um, you know, McCarthy had reserved a, a big ballroom to make his big victory announcement. The Democrats had prepared nothing because the polls said, you know, it's going to be a red wave. And I do wonder um, about, you know, it's a very good question, um, how much the polling picks up those who are, you know, not, um, you didn't finish high school, who are less educated. And that might give part of the skew. My own personal reflection is in um, right before Trump won uh, the U.S. election, I did a documentary. I was actually traveling around Virginia. And everyone I spoke to um, was voting for Trump. And these are, you know, I spoke to a range of people, but um, it was pretty interesting to me because a lot of them would, would be what we call blue collar workers. And, you know, there's only one candidate they were supporting. So the the support was much stronger than what the polls were saying. Um, and I just, I personally felt having done that trip, come back to the UK, I started saying to people, I think Trump's going to win. <laughs> I said. I said. Uh, I. I. Uh, I met a lot of people, and uh, it's not what the polls are telling us. So you know, it has been uh, going on for some time. But it's to me, this is one of the. This is a question that I hope the LSE students, that are wonderful students, can do a big thesis on because I think this is this is you know hugely important for the future of a lot of political parties. What happens when you all move to the center ground? Um, what happens to the voters that you have left behind um, to try and uh, win because of marginal voter theory. So, <laughs> James, you had your hand up and then I'll come to you, Joe. Yeah. Well, the question I think is phrased is what are Democrats doing to try to collect uh, the votes or gain the earn the votes of uh, white um particularly men who don't have an um, advanced degree. And yet I think the question is really what are Republicans doing as well? And the reason I put it that way is because this is a hard problem. It's a truly hard problem. And it's one where I think we all have to have a lot of empathy for people in this situation. We all believe in education. That's that's what we're on about. But you know, a lot of people aren't able to have those kinds of opportunities. And what's happened in the last 70 years is that the relative stature and the range of options for people who end up in that situation has fallen and compressed. And they're in very difficult circumstances. And yet at the same time, the world economy has moved on, as, as Stephanie 
Stephanie mentions, we have global competition, we have technology, and uh, it's hard to figure out how to help these people regain the stature that they previously had. Uh, the demise of unions, which traditionally protected those specific types of individuals, especially white men working in these kinds of sectors, uh, has really not helped them at all either. And I wouldn't suggest that reunionizing is necessarily the best approach, but um, there are so many challenges in trying to help these people who well deserve our thought and consideration that uh, this is just a hard problem that I don't think you know Trump or anybody on the right or left is going to be able to solve easily. Joe. Um, so, I mean, we were the question was phrased in terms of college versus non-college voters. Yeah. But I think yeah. first off, it, it, it's worth pointing out that that is only one dimension along which this realignment is happening between Republicans and Democrats right now, because you also... I, I mean, if you just look at the map of where the districts are that the two parties have won, I mean, it's pretty clear that the Democrats are now much more of an urban party than they used to be before. Um, the Republicans have become much more of a rural party than they were before. Um, you know, across a lot of the, you know, the college versus non-college is only one dimension of this much bigger, you know, transition that's going on. And I think the other thing to point out is that, that isn't really new. I mean, going back more than 40 years ago now, you had this phenomenon of Reagan Democrats, which I think was really one of the first times that people were, were observing the beginnings of this shift of blue collar workers, especially white blue collar men toward Repub you know, voting for Republicans. And so, the, you know, it's sort of you know, one problem you run into when you have an election is that you want to view everything through, through the prism of what has happened in this specific election. Um, and the presence of, of Trump in the mix tends to make that tendency even more so. Um, but I think that you know, Trump is only part of a much bigger story of a realignment that's been going on and that will probably continue even you know, once he's out of the picture. Here, can I add one more thing yeah, about education okay. before we move on? Yeah. When um, Biden did the student debt forgiveness, there were all these predictions like, oh, people, you know, are, there's going to be backlash. People are going to vote against it. that. We didn't see that. At least it doesn't look like we saw that. And maybe some of the very high turnout, some of the Democratic support of people under 30, that sort of 18 to 29 demographic, maybe some of that was about student debt forgiveness, increasing access to education. So we don't know that. It would be interesting to to dig into that and see that. But there is this effort on the Democratic side to expand access to education in the form of debt, student debt forgiveness. Good point. Um, I think I wanna to try to switch a little bit to the international side if I, I can for um, a second here. We have a question in here from um, uh, Jaichin Chi, a PhD student who's at uh, Tulane, um, uh, but originally uh, from China. Um, if Republicans win this time, so if Republicans do take the House, let's say House alone or House and Senate, um, would they put more pressure on Biden to get tougher on China? Um, and what would be the implications for the U.S. economy if that happens? So, I mean, there's two different questions here, kind of what are the implications of kind of decoupling in general for the American economy? But let's focus a little bit on, on what the implications um, 
maybe from the Biden side. I mean, is Biden, you know, it's very common for um, a president after usually losing the midterms, and he still likely will lose the midterms, but I think when he goes to Bali, he may not have a next week, he may not have a tailwind behind him, but he's not going to have the kind of headwind that, you know, he might have expected. Um, I mean, what what should we expect, um, let's say, with respect to U.S.-China relations? Um, these are very tense. Things have gotten, you know, really um, tense. But we now have a president that might have domestic incentives to focus on foreign policy. And arguably, a case could be made that Xi Jinping might now that he's consolidated power want to look for you know changing the dynamic with the united states or look for at least some issues maybe climate where uh, he can cooperate with the united states anyway i'd like to just get you know maybe first on on uh pick up on this question of um China, but let me just throw one other out there. It, you know, there's a question here. It's not quite framed this way from, um, as you're thinking about that, from uh, Roger Slattery um, about Ukraine. And I guess what should we expect? Forget Kevin McCarthy. What should we expect from Biden over the next two years? I mean, a lot of Europeans were very focused, especially, of course, the closer perhaps you got to the Ukraine on this election and what it was going to mean um, for support for the Ukraine. And so, I mean, kind of thinking about where Biden is now and kind of maybe the latitude that he has or doesn't have, what should we expect with respect to maybe these two important kinds of questions? I don't know, Linda, do you want to get us started? Yeah, thanks, Peter. Really well put. Um, I think if I if I tackled the kind of U.S. and China one and the implication for the economy. Um, so I, I like the way you put it. Um, maybe less of a headwind going to Bali. Um, so Xi Jinping is coming with a bit of a tailwind. Um, he has consolidated quite a lot of power. Um, but say the Republicans take uh, both houses. Um, it might mean that Biden can use that and say, listen, I have to be tough. I now have a divided, you know, the legislature is pressing on me, you know, you know what Republicans are like, Democrats are the party of free trade, you know how they, I suspect he might use that because ultimately under the Biden administration, they have been very hard on China. It's not just restricting semiconductor chips, which is, you know, Chinese producers are now reducing the speed of semiconductor chips just to get around U.S. sanctions. Um, they're, they're requiring the de-Americanization of, um, you know, key industries like semiconductors. Um, so in other words, Chinese um, uh, born uh, people who become naturalized U.S. citizens um, are now being, have to get permission to work. Um, in these areas in China. So the de-Americanization, I think, is human capital is absolutely the key for technology transfers, for, you know, globalization, collaboration. So to me, um, the wave here is for a lot of competition in some pretty key areas. And so 
I do wonder if, I mean, it's one, it's the one issue that the Democrats and Republicans seem to agree on, which is they want to be tough on China. They don't want China's rise to eclipse that of the US, unfair competition. So I do wonder a bit if um, uh, it'll be tense next week, I think either way, but it's a good thing that they are meeting because what I will say is despite the fact we've had all these tension, and this is where I do worry about a Republican um, you know, sweep, is that the US and China have come together where it matters at the WTO. They both signed up to uh, the JSI on services, trade liberalization, as boring as that sound is absolutely key <laughs> um, because services trade is the, you know, is the biggest part of both economies, is the biggest part of the world economy, and it doesn't have global rules. So they've come to the table, they've agreed it. And it's like they understand that old joke, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So, <laughs> so I do, I do, so I do worry that with more Republican uh, strength, it might be harder for Biden to come and make those kinds of agreements that will really matter. And then just quickly on the US economy, um, you know, anytime you make, you can make supply chains more resilient, but there is a cost. So you have to be very selective. So, you know, you want to have choice um, and some, uh, there may be sectors that impact dual use technology, whatever it is, but there's always a cost and you have to recognize um, that cost. And I would hope um, you know, so here's more advice for the Biden administration. If you want to move down the road of decoupling of certain sectors, be clear, be transparent, accept there's going to be adjustment costs and recognize there'll be an impact on the economy for which you should use domestic fiscal policy to help people who are affected. Um, and ultimately, depending on what it is that you do, um, it could be um, it helps the economy grow depending on how you do that very carefully. Um, but in the short term, there'll always be a cost. Joe, go ahead. And then I'll come to you, James. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I completely agree with Linda that there is a strong bipartisan component to a lot of the tough rhetoric on China now. I think that uh, Trump was always a bit of a distraction about that because he was more reflecting a consensus that had developed in Washington already rather than actually driving it. Um, I mean, the one thing that I would add to Linda's analysis is the issue of military spending, uh, because this is becoming a, a big issue. Um, there's a develop, there's a growing debate about the state of military readiness, especially the Navy in the Pacific. Um, you're going to have a lot of vexing issues about uh, arms sales to Taiwan, for example. Uh, and I think that having that Biden having that kind of conversation with a Republican. House or with a Republican House and Senate is very different from the kind of conversation that the administration might have been having with a Democratic-controlled Congress up to now. So I think that if you're looking for signs where you might have substantive change, it could come through the fact that once it does come time to do budget, uh, you know, budget stuff, if Washington can ever get itself organized to actually do that. Right. Um, you can now have a conversation with Republicans who would be more amenable to stepping up some of the military spend. Right. That's an interesting angle. Um, yeah. yeah, James, uh, I, and I, I don't know who, whether you or Stephanie had your hand up first, but go ahead, James. Great, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I th Linda, your point about using the my hands are tied argument with the Republican Congress is brilliant. I think you're right. And uh, maybe that's also not just forecasting, but but advising um, Mr. Biden in the Oval Office. Um, the way I think about this and the foreign policy dimension is there are the straightforward 
challenges. And then there's the really, really hard challenge of China. So the straightforward challenges, we know where you know, Biden is extraordinarily pragmatic. So he pulled out of Afghanistan and it was symbolic. And I think personally, I think it was a disaster and reprehensible. Um, but the Republicans love to, you know, talk about the people betrayed in Afghanistan, people, you know, clinging to air, wheels of airplanes, and they, they, they made hay of that uh, tragic situation. But Biden showed us who he is, which is he is not a person who's going to get bogged down in these domestic conflicts abroad. Um, and sure enough, when Ukraine came, it was really clear what he was going to do. And he's done exactly what we should have seen, you know, should have predicted, which is you're going to fund the local side that you like, that you prefer as much as possible and support them. Now, the Republicans, I think, would like to try to rein in that spending for all kinds of reasons. The principal reason, of course, being to thwart Joe Biden. Um, but they also might like to save some money. But I think there's a strong element of the Republican Party that really likes to see the Russians on the heels. And so there's only so far that the Republicans can go to letting Russia gobble up Ukraine. The hard challenge, of course, is China. It's truly a challenge because the difficulty is that we really don't know how things are going to play out. We can have these discussions about we invest in this military technology or that military technology, these kinds of things. But the conflict between the U.S. and China could take so many different forms. And we know so little about how great power conflict would actually play out in this context that those questions are almost academic. And here I fear that even though there is this bipartisan Sinophobia within the U.S. The Republicans are so spiteful of Joe Biden at this point that they will not support him trying to take as tough a stand as he would like. But back to Linda's point, maybe Biden can use that in his negotiations. Stephanie. The, the premise of the question almost suggests that Biden hasn't already been very tough on China, which he has. Biden has been extremely tough on China in his recent actions. But even remember, he maintained Trump's tariffs that Trump imposed during the US-China trade war. He's converted them to quotas, but they're still barriers to trade. And research has shown that these barriers to trade are hurting US farmers, particularly soybean farmers, but also consumers. So Biden's already been extremely tough on China. Maybe there's room for, for more toughness, but we'll see how that goes. The other thing I just wanted to highlight is that Biden, when, when Biden took over from Trump, we thought, okay, it's going to be a reset. We're going to re-engage with our international partners. We're going to re-engage in multilateral institutions. We'll end the trade war. Some of that happened. The trade war still continued, right? Biden kept the tariffs. But there was an attempt to reach out, you know, to engage more with the World Trade Organization, to engage more with allies, to build a coalition. But Biden perhaps rightly pivoted to his domestic agenda, and he got a lot done in those first two years. But now he's not going to. If there's a divided government, if the House goes Republican, he's not going to achieve a lot on his domestic agenda. So I think we might see him pivot to foreign policy because there, there is a little bit more leeway. Some things you need Congress to do in terms of foreign policy, but there's a lot that you don't need Congress to do. And so I think maybe a, a frustrated Biden at home becomes a leader abroad. I'm going to turn back to, um, there's a number of questions here that <clears throat> are on um, domestic matters, domestic pol domestic politics. Um, one of these, I'm, I'll, I'll throw out a few. One of these comes from Ellie Miller Hall. She asks, what can we expect from the Warnock-Walker runoff? And how is it possible that Walker got so much support? 
and I'm an old New York Giants fan, and I have that question. I have that same question. Um, so that's one question. Another question comes from Peter uh, Roby from the class of '77. He's in um, Newport, Rhode Island. Is AOC still a rising star in the Democratic Party? And let me let me kind of broaden or add to that question. What are the implications of the election for the Democratic caucus and for the divisions that we've seen between progressive Democrats and kind of, you know, more mainstream uh, kind of centrist Democrats who everybody thought, you know, was on they were on the chopping block. Well, they, maybe they were on the chopping block, but they're still here. You know, um, there's a lot of those moderate Democrats did not lose their seats uh, last night. So how do we think about that dynamic? And, you know, I think also in terms of kind of the leadership of the Democratic Party um, going forward. And then there is a question, um, um, maybe, um, where is that question? about on the on the Republican side, um, what we should see. I'm looking, trying to find the question right now. At any rate, I remember it. I just can't remember who um, asked it. I mean, how much division should we really expect to see in the Republican Party? I mean, in the retrospective analysis of why they didn't do as well as they expected. I mean, is it really going to be a split between kind of Trump supporting Republicans on the one hand and and those, Joe, that you were saying, you know, need to kind of think about a kind of forward agenda, an economic agenda, one that'll appeal to a broad segment. Are we going to really see it uh, a kind of implosion where it, it divides I feel like we've heard this before and it hasn't materialized. And so I, I wonder, I mean, because what's really required there is for Trump to take on a lot of water, that there's a narrative that comes out of this, that he deeply hurt the party for that to succeed and for that to get traction. So anyway, questions about what's going on internally inside the two parties. Thoughts? Maybe we start with Herschel Walker. Somebody want to go there? Nobody wants to go there, James. And Jay, okay, we'll start with I'll, you, James. And yeah, I'll be very quick on this one. I have no idea how that happened. Um, but in terms of December sixth, um, I worry that the Libertarian votes are going to go for the Republican candidate, and so the Democrats are going to be in for a, for a, for a tough December. But we'll see. And and why is that? I mean, that's significant, but it's especially significant because if you want to vote in that December sixth election. You had to register for it already, I think. In, in Georgia has these screwy rules where even before you know the result, you have to indicate whether you're going to vote in a runoff, I believe. Joe, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, I, I'm not sure exactly what the, the rule is, but I mean, I, I think the key dynamic in that kind of runoff is, uh, especially if it's clear that that is going to be the decisive vote in the Senate, you will end up with a lot of money Republicans who will show up and hold their noses and vote for Walker just to get the R on the board. Um, and, you know, that's sort of a thing that happens uh, in politics everywhere. 
Um, you know, voters around the world are accustomed to having to hold their noses to vote in service of assembling a majority in the, the legislature. And I think that that's what will happen there. Um, if, that, if that happens, then they lose the Senate. The Democrats will most likely lose the Senate. Right. And so why does that like really matter policy wise? I mean, if the Democrats lose the Senate, what does that really, you know, I mean, there, there's not going to be any court appointments. By the Biden. I mean, you have a, you know various other executive appointments that might come up that require Senate approval of a bunch of regulatory agencies, and then also, I mean, it's a question of do you want um, one chamber investigating you all the time, or do you want two chambers? <laughs> okay. Um, I, I also have thoughts on the uh, third question about uh, whether the GOP and, and Trump, if you have a minute yeah. for that, um, this is an enormous gift to people in the Republican Party who have been looking for some way to purge Trump's influence because this election result actually solves an enormous problem for them. And that problem was you had to come up with some way where you could kind of sideline Trump without calling the millions of people who voted for him in good faith and they were holding their noses while they were doing it without calling them fascists. And this, this is the big problem that both the Never Trump Republicans and also a lot of people on the left has had, have had is that you know, Trump was able to keep his influence as long as there wasn't really any way of peeling those voters away without accusing the voters themselves of either stupidi stupidity or hostility to democracy. And now, all of a sudden, we have this evidence that Trump is a loser. And a big part of his appeal to these voters was this carefully cultivated image that he has developed going back to his business career of always being a winner. You know, it was the sense that he fights and he wins, and that was the thing that was so appealing, and that was why it was so important to him and his brand to not concede any ground on the 2020 election. Now that he and his candidates are you know, demonstrated losers here, you can now say to those voters, well, you know, look, he did all of these things that you liked. You got the Supreme Court, you got, you know, whatever you liked about the foreign policy, you got the tax reform in 2017. But the magic has faded, and he's not a winner anymore, and now the party needs to find someone who has. And you've noticed that that line is an opportunity to say insulting things about Trump without, by extension, saying insulting things about his voters. And if the Republicans are smart, which is always a big if in this kind of conversation, that is exactly the kind of opportunity that they have needed for six years, and now they have it. Stephanie, you had your hand up, I think. Yeah. I think I'll take the AOC question. I yeah. think, yes, she's still a rising star, but I think this election more generally potentially points to the need for leadership change and really generational change, right? We saw this big turnout from the 18 to 29-year-olds. The U.S. has some of the oldest politicians amongst developing countries. And so maybe it's time to have younger blood coming in and giving them some leadership positions where, you know, we have younger people moving through the party and getting into important positions in both parties in order to say, yes, 18 to 29 year olds, you're part of this 
uh, electorate. You're part of this political process. So I think that that's maybe, hopefully, a takeaway point for both parties from these election results. Linda? Yeah, I agree with that. I think AOC has called for that. She's called for a different uh, set of House leaders. Um, and I mentioned that there are now young people um, entering Congress, millennials, in fact. And so I think AOC has not, has not endorsed Biden for a second term. And maybe she throws her hat in the ring. Um, you know, she's uh, she has uh, certainly... Um, uh, she certainly has a platform. And um, I, I'm not sure I really should because I don't watch football at all. Um, Walker, <laughs> no. wasn't he a, a major football player from the University right. of Georgia? And yeah. he had won uh, the Senate primary with big numbers. And I suppose my uh, my my uh, my take on him is, you know, he's obviously had also tons of allegations against him. And he sort of has taken a page from how Trump deals with it, which is to not deal with it. And that to me, coming back to the worries about democracy, that to me is actually quite worrying. But the, the final note on, I guess, um, how well he's done is Trump has avoided Georgia in these last few days to avoid damaging <laughs> uh, Walker's um, uh, you know, run. And that tells you a lot about maybe what the Republican voters and this kind of gradual shift we're discussing um, might actually be looking for. So, so I think in the last, uh, I think they are now headed um, in Georgia uh, for the runoff on December the 6th. So we may not know who controls the Senate until then, Peter. Indeed, we may not know. And also just to go back to Joe's point, it's possible that Trump will try to influence the outcome of what happens in Georgia directly. Um, you know, so that uh, to make himself relevant and so forth. So it could backfire, you know, um, that um, that in fact, people hold their nose and vote for the Democrat like they did last time. Um, so, you know, I could see it going either way. To, it's unclear to me. Um, so, but what came up a couple times was a reference to Biden. And I got a lot of questions here about Biden. And what do the Democrats do? What does Biden do? Does Biden stand for, does this increase the likelihood that Biden stands for re-election in 2024? If he does, is he better off if, I'm just kind of summarizing the questions, is he better off if he's going up against um, Donald Trump? Or, um, you know, or DeSantis, or, I mean, there's others out there too on the Republican side, the governor of Virginia, but let's say DeSantis, because he's the one that's got all the oxygen right now, and more importantly, all this money that's coming in, um, and will continue to come in as a result of the election. I mean, where do people stand on this? And what do you, what do you think? Do you, you think this, I mean, Joe Biden is not getting any younger. And, um, and it, you know, it could very easily, I mean, it is, if it's, if he's up against a younger candidate like DeSantis, age is going to be a factor in the election. If he's up against Trump, I think not so much, you know, um, uh, I, I don't know. Thoughts about that? that? I've got several questions kind of that are all about this. Like, what are the implications for Biden in 2024? Who should we kind of expect? the Republicans to put up, 
Anybody want to speculate about 2024? James, jump right in there. Yeah, so I, I have been strenuously avoiding the question of the future of the Democrats because I think it's actually a very difficult challenge. I mean, I agree with everything that Joe said, which is the Republicans have been handed a gift in a way, which is to reclaim the party. You can have Trump's preoccupations, Trump's concerns, Trump's policies even without all the drama, without the liability. And I think the Republicans are seeing that. It could be DeSantis. It could also be Marco Rubio. Um, and uh, Stephanie's comments and Linda's comments about the age gap and, and thinking about the future, I think are really relevant. So maybe it could be AOC, somebody else within the Democrat Party, but it's hard to imagine Joe Biden doing well against a much younger, more charismatic uh, Republican candidate, uh, especially one who is maybe kind of associated with the future of the party. Uh, Biden is, you know, so much stuck in in the past in the old ways and demographically something we haven't talked about uh which matters i think very much is the the shift in the composition of the american electorate along ethnic lines and the increasing popularity uh of the republican party among uh, Latinos. And so if you have Biden running against DeSantis, who's done very well with Latinos, or someone like Marco Rubio, that's a real issue for the Democrats. And if they want to try to slow that Republican uh, uh, acquisition of, of, of the Latino vote, uh, they've got to run somebody who can connect better with that demographic. AOC is one obvious example, but there are others. Yeah, just to underscore the point about DeSantis, he's the first Republican governor in Florida since Jeb Bush in 2002 to win Miami-Dade, which is, you know, I mean, it's Hispanic. And so I think he really, you know, it just obviously really helped himself by doing that. Um, who was next? Um, go ahead, Linda. I was just thinking about their age. I think um, Biden is nearly twice as old as DeSantis. I think DeSantis is what, mid 40s? And I think Biden is uh, early 80s. Um, so, you know, I do think there is something about the, uh, I think, you know, Jinx put it well, I think it's, if you're casting somebody as the candidate of the future of the party, I think that would put some pressure um, on Biden. He also has very low popularity ratings. And, you know, and he hasn't uh, gotten sufficient credit, I don't think, for a lot of the economic um you know, uh, domestic economic infrastructure policies that he's put forward. I think Kamala Harris has really struggled in terms of her popularity ratings. And I think all of those things may build into some type of, you know, uh, certainly a debate about whether or not you need an, a younger, uh, you know, uh, set of, um, of candidates to consider. Now, Peter knows this, um, you know, my former student is Peter Buttigieg, who is the transport secretary. Um, so he would be around the same age, <laughs> he'd be in his 40s. So I do wonder in the next two years, whether or not in two years time when we're sitting here, we may actually see, um, you know, maybe finally a generational shift um, in terms of US politicians. We'll see. Stephanie? I think this election and the outcomes of this election give uh, Biden the choice, right? He, he won't get pushed out which he might have, right, if, if the election broke the other way. But the Democrats overperformed. They overperformed by enough to give Biden the choice to decide, am I going to continue to lead this party or am I going to step aside? And I think that's a choice that he has only now because of the overperformance of the Democrats in this election. Yeah. Joe? 
Um, I, I would just point out, I mean, look, if we're looking ahead to 2024, I think there's an interesting imbalance that I see developing between the two parties, because if you look at what's happening on the Republican side, there's actually a surprising amount of agreement already kind of developing about the broad contours of the sort of policy program that they will want to take to, to voters. Um, and the question is, who is the person to sell that? Um, and I think that there's this general view on the Republican side that something approaching the DeSantis mix of economic and culture issues is very likely to be the, the winning format. The question has just been who is going to be the person who is the right standard bearer for Trumpism 2.0, since, you know, Lord help us, we don't want it to be Trump. Um, the Democrats have this problem where they have to pick, pick both a person and a policy platform. And so, I mean, the conversation we were having a few minutes ago about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sort of skirted the issue that she is of the very far left of the Democratic Party. It is not at all obvious that that is going to be the policy platform that is going to win back a lot of the independent voters that they're going to need to win an election. In fact, it might end up being a liability for them. And that's going to come back to the point I raised right at the beginning. Did, they, did the Democrats think that they had a good night last night because they were right in some sense or just because they were lucky? Um, and I think that elevating AOC will be a sign that they think that they were right. I think that if they go through this longer period of casting around looking for both the right kind of policy agenda and the right standard bearer for it, it'll be a sign that they have coalesced around the view that they only got lucky. Just out on thinking about the democratic field, we're, we're, I like the way that Stephanie framed it. If, if Biden has a choice and if Biden were to choose to, to um, pass the baton, so to speak, who's out there? So with Pete Buttigieg, there's Kamala Harris. Who in the Democratic field? I mean, is Josh Shapiro now suddenly, you know, um, you know, I mean, a, kind of a star or, you know, somebody at the governor's level? Usually these are, are, are people at that level. Is there Gavin Newsom has certainly mixed it up with DeSantis um, and demonstrated that, you know, he's no kind of. I don't know, wilting flower or something. I mean, he's willing to duke it out. And, uh, and so thoughts about this? I mean, James. Yeah, this, this is a real challenge. Again, this is why I've been avoiding this because I don't know. I don't have a good answer. And some of the people who have, as you put it, grabbed oxygen in the past have not done well. So Shirley Abrams and um, Beto O'Rourke, right? Not, I was watching Fox News today uh, and they were having a field day over over uh, those those campaigns. So um, the, I had thought that when Biden was nominated, this was a sort of compromise among the Dem Democrats to try to you know just find a way to turn Trump out and 
buy some time. And then I thought, okay, well, Kamala Harris, maybe she's the future of the party. They're going to elevate her. And Biden's going to spend a lot of time trying to get her national attention. But, you know, his approval ratings are really bad, the worst since Harry Truman. Um, and basically, since we've had records, and hers are, are not especially good either. So I, I don't know. And I, I think, Joe, you put it really aptly when you say the trouble is you've got to pick a person and a policy package. I don't, other than the culture wars and the right to choose, which I think was huge in this election, I'm not sure the Democrats have something uh, around which to build their their future. So look, we have three more minutes here. And I thought what I would do is just give each one of you, well, not even a full minute, right? So for some, you know, kind of final comments, and maybe we'll go in reverse order. So Linda, I'll start with you. You don't get to take more than 45 seconds. Um, thank you, Peter. Um, what a fantastic discussion. I think my only point um, to take away is turnout may not have been as high as we had wanted, but turnout was high. And I do think this is, to me, um, one of the uh, best outcomes um, from the midterm elections. People know that voting matters. Um, and I think that's also helped shape the outcome. So I want people to remember that when they're stuck in a queue and they don't seem to be able to get into vote. Uh, oh, and also, please, can we improve the voting system? completely agree with what Joe said. <laughs> Maybe the Brazilian system, they seem to have learned from the U.S.'s mistakes. Maybe it's time to copy them. Joe, you. Uh, it's kind of churlish to make this point after we've been talking for an hour and a half about interpreting the election result, but I guess my closing thought would be don't overinterpret the election result. <laughs> the reality and this is an important point for, especially for any people who have been joining this from outside of the U.S. I mean, the fact of American elections is that they always tend to be highly localized, uh, very idiosyncratic in each house district or Senate race or governor race. Um, a lot of it hinges on candidate quality, and that's what makes it so difficult for the parties to know how to understand what has just happened to them. Stephanie? I've already said, I think this was a win for democracy, but it really was a win for women. I think that that decision, the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade turned out women and they voted and it mattered. And so I think that the positive takeaway from this election is that it was a win for women and women's rights. And James, you get to close it out. I just hope that we see both parties search their souls and come up with better candidates and more attractive platforms. And I think we've seen that that strategy has served those parties well, and I think will serve the U.S. and the world better as well in the future. Yeah, it's a great place to leave it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a great pleasure and um, to have the opportunity to listen to this distinguished um, group of panelists. I want to thank all of you. James, Stephanie, Joe, Linda, for joining um, us, taking the time to share your thoughts. I'm sure everybody that was on the platform found them as interesting and uh, helpful as I did. To everyone uh, out there from all of us at the Fallon U.S. Center uh, at LSE, stay healthy, stay safe. Thank you. Bye now. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.